great to be here this morning. I hope some of you feel the same. Well, again, we're in the book of Luke, and it's become a little bit of a, of a teasing point at Rock. They asked, when are we going to be out of the book of Luke? Hey, hey, hey. And they asked me, how many chapters are in the book of Luke? And I couldn't even tell them. 24, yes. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, you are, um, you are amazing. And Father, you move, with, we, you move in our midst, oftentimes very stealthfully. We just go on about our business and, and we talk to people and we have thoughts and we're doing busy things and, and important things, Lord. And, and we just move all, all the time and are unaware of you. But this is what we know from Scripture. You are always with us. So, Father, we thank you that even when we are too busy with trivial things, that you have kept your promise, which is an eternal thing. We're so grateful for that, Lord. You see us in our good moments. You see us in our bad moments. You see us when we are being obedient, when we are just being rebellious. Not only do you see those things, you know our thoughts. <clears throat> That's disconcerting to me most of the time. But Lord, through your grace and your mercy, uh, we find hope and security and peace. Thank you. Lord, as we continue this study, may we be alert and aware that this is not just a sermon. Um, it's a message from you through an imperfect vessel. But Lord, your message can come across loud and clear. So we pray for that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before we get started in the message, I want to say um, thank you to the veterans in all walks of life and in all branches uh, both voluntary and drafted and all those things. Uh, thank you so much for your service. Um, we are <clears throat> we're indebted to you. And I know that <clears throat> there are a lot of words in our culture today that used to be fine to say, and now we're not sure which ones we can say and which ones we can't anymore. But I'll just say this. I do love America. Uh, I don't love America the way I love God or my wife or even you. Probably lost a few with that one. Um, but I think America is, is a good country. And uh, there are people that have fought and died for us to be able to have the freedom to be here today. And those all sound like cliche and are probably politically incorrect, but sometimes politically incorrect just has to be said anyway. So um, thank you uh, for your service. And the ones we lost, of course. We recognize them on Memorial Day. So last week, <clears throat> we almost got through chapter 21. As a matter of fact, I sped right through that for 45 minutes. And we got to the last two or three verses, and I even had notes on those two or three verses, and I thought, you know, we just can't stay here for another day or so, working through the 21st chapter of Luke. So I was going back and reviewing, <clears throat> and I thought, you know, we can... It was said, and that was fine, but the more I read these scriptures in the, in the, in the end of verse, in chapter 21, the more they came alive to me again. Um, and so, you know, 
We're just going to we're going to hang at the very end of chapter 21 today. A little bit of a review and then some of what we learned last week. I'm going to expound on that a little bit because there's a picture that we can begin to understand perhaps. And uh, so uh, we'll be in uh, Luke 21 beginning with verse 32. So last week we continued our study in Luke and we did encounter some very dramatic scriptures. The scriptures began as a prophecy that some would say and, and it's true, by the way, of the destruction of, Israel, of Jerusalem and the temple that would begin in 66 A.D. under the command of Titus, which was a, a Roman soldier. And um, there, there's all kinds of things we, that, that we talked about that in, all the way through Luke, so I won't reiterate any of those. But uh, the prophecy that Jesus was speaking in the temple <clears throat> and then on the Mount of Olivet really dealt with the end times. But the prophecy, as, as the scriptures can so readily do, it can mean something for your immediate future. There's, there are immediate lessons <clears throat> in the prophecies, but there's something where he's looking way on down the road also. And it all still applies. So that's what we read last week. But precluding the fulfillment of this prophecy in, uh, about, Israel, about uh, Jerusalem, and the temple would be some signs that would serve as a warning at the time was near. Earthquakes, signs in the heavens in Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. We talked how that had happened in between Christ's prophecy and, uh, and 66 A.D. All of these signs could be said, well, that, those are the signs Jesus was talking about. But then they got a little more radical. So these signs transpired uh, before 66 A.D., but within these same passages, Jesus spoke of signs that would not be fulfilled until the final approach of his glorious return. And the key scripture that alerted us to this last week was verse 32, Luke 21, 32. This is on your scripture sheet, I believe. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And we talked about that. But in a nutshell, the interpretation here is that Jesus was not speaking about the generation to whom he was speaking. He was speaking of yet a future generation at that point in his discourse. This is one of many opinions, by the way, how, how theologians disagree on these things, but I believe this is accurate. And these future events, which are spelled out in many scriptures throughout the Bible, meaning the future events of the end times, are unmistakably far more destructive and horrifying than anything uh, that anyone on earth has ever seen, even if we include the flood, which destroyed the whole world except for a certain family. But these signs are going to be even more dramatic. And so we looked at that and we thought, well, we really can't say they saw those signs in between Christ's resurrection in 66 AD. So this has to be about the end times. And one of those scriptures in the future events said this, heaven and earth, in verse 33, will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. And then he makes this astounding claim. But my words will not pass away. So I just want to pause there for a moment. Heaven and earth will pass away. Can you imagine anything larger than heaven and earth? Can you imagine anything more than what the Hubble telescope has shown us anything more than the Mars rover 
Many people were disappointed about Mars because it doesn't look good. All of these things that we just think are beyond our scope of understanding, and they are, by the way, they're going to pass away. That's going to be dramatic. Heaven and earth will pass away. He says, but my words will not pass away. This is quite an amazing and unbelievable statement, by the way, which is commonly overlooked. Heaven and earth will pass away. This equals all creation. The entire universe as we know it will be no more. And then Jesus makes this amazing statement that my words will not pass away. Let's go back for a minute. We understand who Jesus is because of thousands of years into the future and and God assembling a Bible for us where we can read the Bible and get the big picture. Now, not the whole big picture. We're still pretty well flummoxed, right, when it comes to some of these things in the Bible. But we can get the big picture. We know for sure that Jesus is the Messiah. But to them, he was a Jewish man about 33 years old who had amazing powers His words were devastating to some and totally enlightening to others. And he's sitting there and he's saying, by the way, the earth, everything is going to pass away. But these words I'm speaking, they are going to remain forever. Try to wrap your head around that if you're these 12 guys. My words will not pass away. My words are eternal. He would say, my words are living My words are perfect. My words will never not be. There are many things that we would call classic novels and or incredibly intelligent people have written things that have been lost. Some people yearn to find secret diaries or secret research papers of of these people. That will not happen with with the words of God. My word rules creation. My words judge all men and always will. My words will never be unspoken. My words will never be erased. I've spoken millions of words in my lifetime and some of you have heard them all. I can talk a lot, many of which I hope have been forgotten, by the way. Um, I look back on some things I said, and it seems like I said them just yesterday, and they were 30 years ago. And I would still like to go back and erase those words. However, all of the scriptures that we speak here, or sing, or teach or have our students read aloud our words that last for eternity and have eternal value. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. For the life I live in the body, I live by faith forever. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to our God and our Creator. Those words will live forever, not because of who's singing them, Because of who wrote them. And then he issues these warnings, complete with instructions in Luke 21, 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. 
So we're going to take some time this morning to deal with these next few scriptures. Because I believe it is one area where real life butts right up against prophecy. So we're going to get into the weeds a little bit. I'll just warn you about that. Luke 21, 34, 35 says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. And I think that this is an interesting phrase. Lest your hearts be weighed down. Have you ever felt that your heart was weighed down? I've felt this before. Our heart being weighed down goes deeper than having a bad day or a bad week or even a bad year. See, for me, if I know there is a light at the end of the tunnel, although I may not want to go into the tunnel, it's easier for me to go into the tunnel because I know there's an end to that tunnel. But for many people, they enter a tunnel and they never come out. Life is difficult. Some would say it's unfair. I believe Jesus knows exactly what he is talking about here, and he also knows where the battles happen within us as we try to live out our faith in a way that glorifies him. Our heart being weighed down is almost a feeling of desperation. The New Living Translation says it this way, Watch out! Don't let your hearts be dulled. And the message says it this way, but be on your guard. Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dulled. I found that one kind of interesting. Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dulled. There's times in my life when my heart was weighed down. There were times when it felt like my feet were knocked out from under me. Sometimes I had no control over what happened. And then there were other times when my own bad decisions caught up with me. And typically, these were times when that upon which I had built part of my life collapsed. And there was no way to rebuild what had been lost. It's a heavy, heavy heart. The foundation had been destroyed. And some of you can probably relate to this. You lose your job or a dear friend, or a family member. Or perhaps you lose the respect of someone who means a great deal to you. One of the most devastating things my dad could ever say to me when I was a little guy, of course, I was near perfect, but all those times when I wasn't so perfect, my dad would say, Tom, I am so disappointed in you. That would crush me. It would just crush me. And I remember one time when all my kids were home, And, of course, we have two boys, and we have Tricia, and Micah is the middle, and Luke is the youngest. And there was a time, Micah is very tenderhearted, and there was a time when he and I were having a discussion, so to speak, and I I was about ready just to fly off the handle. And I remember him, it dawned on him, and he said, Dad, are you disappointed in me? And I lied. I said, no, because I knew it would crush him. I knew it would crush him. And he doesn't listen to these tapes, so he's still safe. So you lose your job or a family member, or perhaps you lose the respect of someone who means a great deal to you. Well, regardless of the circumstances, your heart becomes weighed down. 
You can know that everything is going to be all right. You can know that God still loves you and that everyone wants to help. And still we struggle. We can't pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. There are times when that happens. Yes, I know God loves you. Yes, I know this is God's plan. Yes, I love you for saying those things. And it does mean a lot to me, but I'm telling you, I know those things and I am still broken. I'm still heavy. My heart is weighed down. In our modern era, we may call this discouragement or depression. And one of the treatments for discouragement or depression, according to whatever experts there are out there, is to remain connected with people and continue to serve others. I'm going to tell you this. People who suffer with depression know that too. It's something that is within us. I also recognize there are physical reasons for depression and that sometimes they must be treated on that level. But the reason I bring this up is to point out the difference between this type of our hearts being weighed down and the type that Jesus is referring to in the next part of verse 34. So to be clear, I am not inferring that the reason your heart is weighed down is because you are in sin. I want to make sure I'm telling you this. That's not the point here. All the, all the things we just spoke about is just real life stuff. But God does speak about our hearts being weighed down when it is because of sin. Verse 34, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. Now, the word dissipation, we don't use it very often anymore. The word associa or asotia, it's is translated into dissipation, the Greek word. And it could be seen as a culture or society breaking apart and dissipating into anarchy, such as rioting. Kind of like today. Kind of like from the Garden of Eden up through today. What's going to happen? But the Bible translators use it this way. In 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4, he says this, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Peter's talking to those who have received Jesus Christ and primarily Jewish people. He said, you've already had enough time doing what the world wants to do. It was wasted time. The time past is, is plenty for having done what you wanted to do, such as living in sensuality or passions or drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And with respect to this, they, meaning those who are doing these things, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign, which means speak evil or slander or defame or vilify you for not taking part with them. Most people who have lived more than 20 years can understand this. Maybe even from a younger age. It depends on the home in which you were raised and the rest of your family. Uh, I was the first person in our immediate family that got saved, so to speak. I didn't know what that meant, but I know that something changed within me, and I started talking differently. Uh, but I was still a, I was a great sinner, by the way, for a long time. But at some point, some of the family began to mock me. And uh, 
it was hurtful and it wasn't. But this is exactly what Peter's talking about. <clears throat> he says, the people who are living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, they invite you to come along. But in order for you to come along, you have to do what they do. And when you decide not to do that, they speak evil of you and slander. It's a form of dissipation. Dissipation results in these things. However, what I believe I have noticed more and more during my lifetime is a lack of shame when committing these things. I say it this way, I'm sure it makes no sense, but at least we had the good sense to hide our sins. We had the civility not to subject you to my sin. There's civility. It's no substitute for salvation, but it sure made life a little easier. And the thing I've noticed about our culture, and by the way, we're not alone in this, the Roman culture was horrific. We're catching up. But it was horrific. There just seems to be no restraints on people anymore. As a matter of fact, if you have a really, if you have a really particularly outrageous sin, what you need to do is get a 501c3 and create an organization so people can donate to your cause and then you can have a parade. That's where it is. We are reminded of the millionaire who had a worldwide sexual empire who entertained some of the most powerful and influential men in the world, recently arrested and dead. Where is the shame? Where are the confessions? Where is the willingness to offer restitution to the victims from these men? Some of the most Recognizable names in the world. Where's the shame? Where's the regret? There's two reasons that's not coming out. Because they don't want to be sued and admitting. So that's all about them. Not about the girls. And the other reason is they don't care. Their shame and confessions and restitution are held captive by the pride, arrogance, and fear of these men. And the sad thing is, I'm not sure that their hearts are weighed down one bit because of this. These sins are the outward signs of a broken and derelict society. Ephesians 5.18 says, It makes reference to being intoxicated as leading to dissipation. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Paul is giving great instructions. Now there is a mouthful of wisdom for us today. Do you agree in this? Why? Because the days are evil. What Paul mentioned to the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians is for us. Look, look carefully, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time. Can we just stop there for just a few seconds? What's the most valuable thing for any one person in the United States of America? It's not money. It's time. My time that I want for myself denies Christ the ministry at times that He has given me to be involved with. It's my time. I deserve the break because I have worked whatever this is. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is Ephesians 5. It's not on your scripture sheet, but the reference is on your scripture sheet. Ephesians 5, 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to whom? To the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for each other. It's not what it says, out of reverence for Christ. Everything is Christ-centered, you guys. If you're reading a scripture and you don't believe it's Christ-centered, read it again. Just keep reading it until you see how it is Christ-centered. Even in the beginning of this, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So Jesus is giving instruction not to live as the world lives and value what the world values because if you do, the end times will surprise you. It will come as a surprise. This is how he says it in Luke twenty-one thirty-four. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this world and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Now, these particular scriptures are very disturbing for a lot of people. Actually, they're disturbing for millions of people. They're disturbing for Christians and those who do not know the Lord. So how does this apply to us? I know you're hoping it does because you've been very faithful in listening. (laughs) As believers in Christ, how we live our lives in our flesh in this life will have a direct effect upon our relationship with Jesus. There's a covenant. Two types of covenants. Two people agree on a covenant. Another type of covenant is a covenant that God has with us, and that is, I love you forever. And if you have become a believer, if you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, this covenant, His covenant is this, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. I will love you unendingly. I have a plan for you, and that plan will come to fruition. That's the the covenant that God has with us. The way we live our lives in the flesh is a direct effect upon our relationship with Jesus. Our hearts can be weighed down because of guilt and shame. It doesn't mean we're any less saved. As a matter of fact... Being less saved would probably ease our minds when we're living in sin. Why? Because there's no conviction. Our hearts can be weighed down because of guilt and shame. Our confidence in Jesus can be skewed because it is filtered through the sins of our flesh. Our meditation on God's word, our prayers, our peace is disrupted. Our demeanor will change from one who is victorious and at peace in Christ to one who is anxious and frustrated and fearful. The way you live affects your relationship with Jesus Christ. It does not affect your position in Jesus Christ, but it affects your relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you ever felt this? Have you ever gone through a season where you're living outside of the will of God for your life, and you know you're living outside of the will of God, 
and you're participating in things that grieve the Holy Spirit, and you just keep moving on, and in your mind you may say, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, but the flesh just keeps winning these victories. How does that affect your prayer life? This is how we're told to walk into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. This is how many of us walk in. Our hearts are weighed down. We become vulnerable to the arrows of the enemy. We, we become timid in our Christian walk when we are intentionally living in sin. This can change our whole countenance. Do you remember when God spoke with Cain back in Genesis? Genesis 4, 6 says this. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? How would you try, like to try to answer that? Tom, why are you so angry? Try to answer that. Can't, because it's all so stupid. Why are you so angry? And by the way, why has your countenance fallen? You don't even look like the same man. Cain changed. And God asked him those questions, but for some, perhaps, the most frightening scripture we see is in Luke 21-35. It says this, For it, meaning the tribulation and the horrible, horrible events we discussed last week, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. This is very inclusive language that Jesus chooses to use here. The generation he is speaking of is anyone and everyone who is dwelling on the planet Earth at the moment these dramatic signs begin. You will not escape them. Rich or poor? Powerful or subservient, presidents, kings, generals, republicans, democrats, independents, baptists, catholics, methodists, non-denominationals, like us, we be in a mall for crying out loud, and nationalities, all nationalities will experience the totality of these things once they begin. If you see the beginning of these things, you will be here through the end of these things. That's a frightening scripture. There will be no pause of these things, no reversal of these signs, and they will lead directly to the second advent or the second arrival of Jesus Christ. Christ's glorious and victorious return to earth. So the question concerning verse 35, everybody who dwells on the earth will experience these things, is who exactly will be dwelling on the face of the whole earth at that time? It's a very good question. And here is the answer to that question. No one really knows for sure. No one really knows for sure. This question has been asked for centuries. It will continue to be asked until Christ returns, at which point a whole lot of people will have to say, 
Oops, I guess I was wrong. Because then it will be revealed. And although there are many scriptures that give us, in my humble opinion, a pretty good idea of how it might go, the Bible does not spell it out in such a way that we can totally comprehend it. So if you want an answer to these questions, stay tuned. Stay tuned. But then Jesus gives us all what we need to know about the end times and how to prepare for them. So although God may not give us the date and the events in chronological order so that we can fully understand them, what God does do is the better thing. He says, regardless of when it comes, this is what you need to do to prepare for my second arrival. Verse 36, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. New Living Translation, keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. The message, pray constantly that you will have the strength and wits to make it through everything that's coming and end up on your feet before the Son of Man. Wow. Strong. So what we need to know from verse 36 is if we remain vigilant and on guard, it is possible to escape these things and that we will stand before the Son of Man. So immediately our minds go in maybe four or five different directions. Okay, so he's telling me what I must do. Okay, so those are works. So do we believe in a works theology? That's, that's one question. You see how this can go into the weeds real quickly here? Um, and are, am I really in control of whether or not I get to stand before the Son of Man? Well, Reformed theology says, no, you're not in control of that. God's in control of that. So we have all of these things that begin to invade our thoughts. But listen to what he said. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. By the way, prayers will not help you escape these things. It's only God. But obviously the connection here is when we pray, we're praying to God. And we have a relationship with Him. Going to verse 37, says, And every day He was teaching in the temple. So let's come back to what's happening. Jesus is teaching in the temple. He gives, his, he gives a lot of words. And then He also does a discourse on the Mount of Olivet. And then he, in between staying on the Mount of Olivet and, and um, His crucifixion, He goes back into Jerusalem the temple every morning and he teaches all day. All day. Goes back out to Olivet with his apostles and they they rest there and he goes back into the temple. And that's where we are with verse 37. All of these things are at the the beginning of verse 37. Every day he was teaching in the temple. Jesus was not avoiding contact with people, by the way. He was continually teaching in the heart of the temple courts. By the way, he made himself available to the common man. Now think about this for a moment. Every word that Jesus spoke was Holy Scripture. 
His teachings were not an interpretation or an academic presentation of his sermons, like you're hearing today. His teachings, everything that he said was 100% Scripture. They were undeniable eternal truth, and they remain eternal truth. It's not open for interpretation. You know, when he said, the world will pass away, but my words will remain, it's because his words are eternal. They're not just words spoken. And as the vibration dies, they fail. They're not words written on a page, and the ink fades. So why is this important to understand? Number one, Christ's words accomplish their purpose. Regardless of how it appears, every word that Jesus spoke accomplished exactly what it was meant to accomplish. We see this in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. It says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's a great, great picture. So you know, the snow comes, it melts, it goes away, and it's left something of value. This is my word. Will accomplish what I intended it to accomplish. So number one, Christ's words accomplished their purpose. Number two, Christ's words did not preach different messages depending upon his audience. Both audiences heard the same teaching and arrived at dramatically different conclusions. Have you ever done that? This is what I heard her say. Well, that is what I heard her say. Were you at the same lecture? Yeah, I was, but I didn't get anything like that out of it. Even more so with the Word of God, because it's always absolute truth. And believe it or not, Jesus spoke it plainly. They both heard the same teaching and arrived at dramatically different conclusions. Christ's words broke the hearts of the elect unto salvation and enraged those who would crucify Him. How can that be? Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. And you can substitute the word mind for soul there. So we would say it this way, piercing the division of mind, intellect, and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no scripture bigger than that, really, when it comes to us. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of mind and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning, understanding, sorting out the thoughts and intentions of Christ. There's a common phrase that is used in our language called parsing out. And that means to break a sentence down into its component parts of speech, 
with an explanation of the form, function, and syntactical relationship of each part. In other words, you break the sentence down, you compare it, you see how it fits, and it says what it's supposed to say. There is no contradiction in the sentence. That's how the Holy Spirit, that's how the Word of God pierces between your mind and your heart to the point that He understands the intentions of your heart. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. I feel a little vulnerable. When speaking of Paul's letters, Peter says the following. Paul was an attorney, for lack of a better term. And he, he, he wrote real big. So people are having a hard time understanding his letters. Peter says this, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. What advantage do believers have in understanding the Word of God? It's called the Holy Spirit. He's our interpreter. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're on the outside of the Bible reading it. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit and you're inside of the Bible reading it. And He interprets us. He counsels us. He guides us. He moves within us. We still see this today concerning reading God's Word. 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. You know the rest of this. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To most of us believers in this culture, we are fools. For us believers, the world looks upon us as fools. You believe in what? I've heard this so many times. I don't believe in anything I can't see or touch. They have a hard time breathing. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Number three, it demonstrates to us the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in all areas. Even to the point of his son's death, suffering, and resurrection. Very famous scripture tells us this. But if you don't look at it in this light, it kind of goes, flies right over you. Because we all learn it when we're about that high. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Who gave? God gave. Who did he give? His son. Why would he do that? So that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's a huge scripture. It's about the sovereignty of God. Who led Jesus Christ to the cross? His Father did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world 
But in order that the world might be saved, how? Through him. Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus delivered up according to the definitive or the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Go back to Luke 37 and verse 21. And every day he was teaching in the temples, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So here we see a change in his routine. When they first arrived in this area, they would go to Bethany. He would stay with Mary, Lazarus, and Martha, and probably their dad. And he would rejoice and he would rest. He and his apostles. But it also said that thousands of people would follow them. In his final two days, they would retreat to Mount Olivet. And this area played a key part in Israel's Israel's history. According to BibleHistory.com, the Mount of Olives was a ridge of hills east of Jerusalem, separated from it by the Kidron or Jehoshaphat Valley. The Mount of Olives, where Jesus prayed, was outside the city, opposite the eastern wall of the temple. Here was the Garden of Gethsemane, which which name means Olive Press. It's not by coincidence. He's going to the Mount of Olives. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, which means olive press, he will be pressed to the point of breaking and did not break. So finally, there are three significant reasons I believe Christ chose to retreat to the Mount of Olivet. It provided privacy from the crowds. It is here that he poured into his disciples for the last time. The Great Olivet Discord Chronicle of Matthew 24. You need to read that this week. It's not very long. Matthew 24, read the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is just, I'm going to say this. It's a vulgar term, but you're going to you know exactly what I mean. He was vomiting truth. It was just pouring out of him. And these 12 guys, including the general of Satan... They're trying to get all of this inside. Matthew 26, 1 and 5, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, meaning the Mount Olivet Discourse, He said to His disciples, And by the way, listen how He says this, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That was the end of the discourse, so to speak. He said, by the way, I'm Him. And I'm, I'm going to be deli- delivered up and I'm going to be crucified. I'm Him wasn't the first time he said it. I'm not going to read these scriptures because we're out of time. They're on your scripture sheet. Luke 13.33, Matthew 16.21, Matthew 22, Mark 8.31. They all, these are all times when Jesus said, I am him. I am him. So I think it provided privacy from the crowd. Secondly, I think it provided safety from the leadership. We all know that the leadership had wanted to kill him pretty much from the time his public ministry began. But they, well, for various reasons, they couldn't get it done. But now they're in a quandary. Matthew 26, 3-5 says this, And the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest. This is when he was teaching up on Mount of Olivet, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be uproar among the people. This is what they wrote. This is what they wanted to do. They wanted to secretly, stealthily arrest him, 
keep him in jail until Passover passed. And these millions of dedicated Jews finally got out of Jerusalem because Rome hated them in Jerusalem. Herod didn't want them in Jerusalem. It was just something they had to put up with. They said, we will not, we dare not do anything to this man while there's millions of people that believe in him, so to speak. So their plan was to secretly arrest him and let the crowds get out of the way. And by the way, that would mean he would miss Passover with his death. Jesus knew all this. So I think it provided safety from his leadership. And finally, Olivet provided solitude for him to be with his father. Matthew 26, 39, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Quoted again in Matthew 26, 42, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So we're going to close with this. Thank you for being patient, by the way. We're going to close with this. What started in the Garden of Eden is coming to fruition in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden was the first sin which required the first sacrifice. In the Garden of Gethsemane is the final sacrifice. And everything in between those two moments was filled with blood and sacrifice and war. And it's all because of that first disobedient act in that garden and there will be a final obedient act in this garden. And Christ knows all too well what is at stake. It's His will that He be crucified. It's His Father's will that He be crucified. And the Holy Spirit will participate in that grief and that pain. So next week we pick it up again. Here's a final thought. If you've not yet received Jesus Christ, you need to. See, in all the the horrible stuff I've been talking about here, the the, the only escape from that is through the blood of Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, and you hear all this horrible stuff, that's for you. But Jesus will receive you as you surrender. Whether you're rich or poor, presidents or kings or servitude, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, individual, independent, any nation. God says, please receive my son. You do that through a simple prayer. Lord, I confess to you, I sin. I confess to you, God, I can't do this. I confess to you, God, that I need a Savior. And I confess to you, God, that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And I receive him now. That is salvation. Well, Lord, what an exciting thing to read your word and to begin to understand just a sliver of all that was involved and all the nuances and the orchestration that your Father did to get you to the cross for His glory and for our sake. We worship you. And we praise you. For it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. If you would like to pray, I would love to pray with you. You also need to know that there's excellent food.
If you go out that door and turn left, and the last store on the right is called I 